Now, whether the four immaterial meditative absorptions are going to have an immediate application for you or not, they should be added to this description in order to make it complete. They're called immaterial because they have a quality of otherness, something that is not known to us in this material world that we live in. Now, when we speak about the material world that we live in, we're not talking about the fact that everybody is running after money, but material world as it concerns corporality, our body, and all the things that we can see and touch and taste and smell and hear, and all the things that we can think about, and even the emotions that we are familiar with. That is the, the latter, is the fine material world, the one that we can touch upon in the fine material jhanas the very fine and more and more subtle emotions. But when we come to the immaterial meditative absorptions, we touch upon a world which is unknown to us in the state that we are in until and unless we meditate and become concentrated enough. That in itself, brings one to understand immediately that there's something much different, something other than what we are usually concerned with. And because that is far more embracing and far more universal and has far greater application and reaches in the direction of absolute truth, we can see with an intelligent mind immediately that we have touched upon something which is not only more valuable, but far more in tune with that inner yearning that everybody has, or maybe I should say almost everybody, because I wouldn't know that everybody has it. So when we touch upon a world, an inner world, which is quite different from anything that is, known or surmised and also not being explained scientifically and yet it's become our own inner experience the result is one where the mind can even out of this meditation which it will be in most of the time refer to that as a reference point if we don't have a reference point in our lives which goes beyond the daily marketplace activities, then those will be our reference point. And as long as they remain our reference point, life is not only difficult, but it's very unsatisfactory. The marketplace activities can never be satisfactory. One time we make it, another time we don't. 
and the reference points are far too material and gross to bring inner joy. They are always concerned with the eight worldly dhammas. So when we don't have those as our reference points anymore, but have something greater, we have at least the ability and opportunity to understand ourselves within the context of an immense whole rather than within the context of this small personality. As long as we stay within that small personality as our reference point, it cannot ever have a result which will make us happy. We'll always find something that isn't just so. Now within this greater whole, this completeness that we can refer to when we are able to do that in meditation, judgment and discrimination disappears because there's nothing to judge and nothing to discriminate. It just doesn't exist there. It just is. And having experienced that what just is, we come back to this, where everything is either good or bad, or mine or yours, and it becomes much easier, easier to also see that as if it were just so. Without that, without that leap into the unknown and that experience of a greater reality, which is on the pathway to an absolute reality, without that, it seems to be not possible to let go of our ego-concerned thought, speech, and activity. We always fall back into it, even though we may have understood that it isn't very satisfactory. The understanding of anything is always the first step. It's never enough. Understanding something has to be the forerunner, but it doesn't really change anything. The four immaterial absorptions are often considered to be an extension of the fourth one which is correct in so far that the fourth one has so much concentration in it that the next four are an obvious progression. However, it often happens, as things usually do, that they don't go by the book, that people go from the third one to the fifth one and leave the fourth one out. It's quite all right, except I'll have to go back and learn the fourth one. The fourth one is the one that brings the greatest energy to the mind because it's the most restful and peaceful and the least observed because an observer is still an activity of the mind and therefore not totally restful and peaceful. 
So because it brings so much energy to the mind, it makes the other four possible. It's often been discussed and thought about that this is very difficult. Once you've done it, you will know that it isn't. The Buddha again and again said that one should direct one's mind in those directions. There's a very important, very short sentence which is totally overlooked. And what it means is that one knows where one wants to go in the meditation and directs oneself there. Now, we can direct ourselves, our minds, to many things. You can direct yourself to go into the dining room and eat. But you can also direct yourself to go to your room and not eat. It's perfectly possible. It's a direction of the mind. You can direct your mind to go and read a book, but you can also direct your mind to read a book and to read a page and try to remember it. It's a totally different experience. We can direct our minds where we want to be. And if we know that, which is profitable, beneficial, and wholesome, and direct our minds there, we will have the experiences which are proclaimed by the Buddha as the necessary path for spiritual emancipation. The fifth one has a resemblance to the first one in the respect of being based on corporality. The first one, if you remember, those of you who are doing it, I'm surely going to remember, has physical sensation in it. It's a physical sensation. Maybe at this point I should mention or add, which I think I haven't done before, that when you do have the physical sensation, the focus of attention is not on the body. It's on the sensation. That's an important point. So the fifth one also has the physical as its foundation insofar that it has an enormous expansion as its um, experience. Now, very often, people feel as if this expansion starts from the body. And because the fifth one is called the infinity of space, that can be quite correct because space is corporality. It is still not mentality. So, and there are only two things in the universe, corporality and mentality. So, the experience of the expansion of the body can be quite correct. Some people don't have that. Some people just experience it in its finality, but many do, and start with the outline of the body, which at that time is so fine, not gross as it is now, but so fine and subtle that it very easily uh, expands. And expands as far as it possibly can, 
and sometimes from there goes into an experience the mind then experiences the a spaciousness which is all pervading in which nothing other than that spaciousness exists now because the body apparently has expanded to that utmost spaciousness it gets lost in it of course and there is no personal body to be found everything is space in that experience there's a very strong observer of that and when one comes out of that the understanding is immediate that this experience showed quite clearly that space is but within that space the me wasn't now we can talk about this me illusion and ego illusion for days weeks months years we can think about it and we can agree to it it will make no difference we've got to experience it this particular experience is not a loss of the me illusion this is a different kind of experience a loss of it and i will probably get to that explanation also in the course of this um retreat but it is a preview it is an experience which shows that such it is and nothing else and because oneself has experienced that and comes out of that again and there has been that experience the totality aspect of universal existence is no longer a word or a mystery but it is a fact and that in itself changes one perspective and one's perception to such a degree that one can never be exactly the same again the change is very marked in one's relationship to nature around one and to people it still doesn't mean that we're now going to love everybody equally which would be nice but it certainly means that we no longer feel separated the totality experience of this spaciousness brings with it the inner feeling of a complete connection now we often talk about it and people even have made a newspaper which is called we are one or something like that and people use these expressions a lot that's very nice all go in the right direction but nothing happens until we feel it and we can only feel it when we experience it the thinking mind 
is the understanding mind, but it can only understand what has been experienced, and what has been experienced is felt. And I'd like you to take good note of this, because that's the difference between an intellectual approach to anything, whatever it may be, and to have the inner realization. A thinking mind is necessary for understanding, but what it can understand can only be the personal experience, and the personal experience is based on feeling. And until and unless we have that down pat and really know where that is at, the spiritual experience will escape us. And when the spiritual experience escapes us, spirituality remains actually lip service. Now, it can be very valuable lip service. There's lots of that going on. But it isn't that what brings happiness. It doesn't bring peacefulness. It doesn't bring a transformation. And that is what spirituality, a spiritual path, brings a transformation of the person that is practicing it. Doesn't show usually outwardly very much unless to a very practiced eye. But it certainly is known by the person who has been transformed. It's a very nice biography written about Teresa de Avila, which is called Gold in the Crucible. And that's what happens, a transformation. The gold's being put in the crucible and then it's being transformed. Like alchemy. And this is what happens with heart and mind. And it can only happen through the personal experience. Everything else is a thought process and being thought about. And as we think about, we put our minds in the right direction so that eventually we can experience it. So the fifth meditative absorption is called the infinity of space. And that's what's being experienced. And if we come out of the fourth or even the third and we direct ourselves to that expansion, it's an expansion of everything that's ever been known, we may be able to enter into that and stay in it for an appropriate time. Appropriate time means that we make up our mind beforehand how long we want to stay. This is part of the jhana practice, to make up one's mind beforehand. I want to stay five minutes in the first one and then maybe ten minutes in each of the others or twenty minutes in each of the others or thirty or forty or whatever it may be. And the mind is quite capable of doing that as soon as it has enough skill to get in there and stay with it. This is called a vipassana jhana, an inside jhana, such as five, six, and seven, all three of them are called that, because it is impossible for a normal mind to experience this without gaining access to the understanding that space is 
but this differentiation and partition of separate beings is nothing but an optical illusion and is created because of the fact that these elements that we consist of are gathered together in different spots. When these experiences happened, that becomes quite clear afterwards. Obviously, an infinity of space can only be experienced with an infinity of consciousness. And therefore, the sixth one again has a certain uh, resemblance to the second one because the pleasant sensation in the first one has to be accompanied by happiness. One can't be unhappy when there are pleasant sensations. And so in the first and second one, it's a matter of changing focus from pleasant physical sensation to pleasant emotional state. And in the fifth and sixth one, it is the same of changing focus from the experience of infinity of space to that which is experiencing it. And that's the infinity of consciousness. Now, the infinity of consciousness is an all-encompassing awareness which again brings to mind afterwards or even while it's happening because the observer is very strong in those. That's why there are Vipassana jhanas. The understanding that even consciousness, even awareness, has no personality. It just is. It exists as an overall part of existence, and as long as we're here as a human being, we have part in that. Just as we have part in space, we take up space, we take up consciousness, but none of it is ours. It doesn't have any labels or names. When we get into the state of infinity of consciousness, there are no labels or names to be found. There are no partitions or separations. There are no me or you, mine or yours. There's nothing which was yesterday or tomorrow, nothing which is good or bad, nothing which is wanted or disliked. Consciousness is. And as consciousness is all-encompassing, as we come out of it, we have another experience which shows us that our idea of me is not quite the way things really are. We still will not have lost it entirely. In fact, the losing of the me illusion in its entirety is only done by the Arahant, the fully enlightened one, and even the preceding steps of enlightenment, which I have not mentioned yet, do not make the ego illusion totally disappear. The jhanas, the meditative absorptions, are a great support system to show us a different dimension, a different dimension of this reality in which we live, 
which is never approachable without the meditative state. The mystics of all tradition in all times have always been able to touch upon these dimensions. That is what makes a mystic. And the understanding of these dimensions have always been, of course, explained in the context of their religious adherence. But they all come out to the same thing. That there isn't a me. There only is existence. It sounds all very interesting. But once one experiences it, it's quite obvious. And with being quite obvious, one can then return to one's activity, whichever it may be, and have a different outlook upon it. Not that one has less inclination to do it, but there is far less obstruction to doing anything. The obstructions of, I like it, I don't like it, I want it, I don't want it, have diminished. Everything diminishes on this level because another level has been added which takes then pride of place. So is this level on which we are all the time here and which is our ordinary daily our consciousness no longer takes pride of place. It has to be attended to and we do attend to it. But it isn't connected to success or failure because there is no such thing as success or failure. Things just are. Buddha called it the knowledge and vision of things as they really are. The words knowledge and vision are extremely important. I've mentioned actually their explanation just a moment ago and many times before. The knowledge is the mind aspect, the thinking aspect. The vision is the inner realization which is connected to feeling. So we have, it's not a vision of some great golden light or something like that, nothing of that sort. It's the inner realization is the vision. So when we have that to as a base, then the knowledge helps us to understand. And when we have made contact with that extra dimension through an undisputable experience and not through imagination or wishful thinking or uh, hopes or prayers, but through a personal experience, we realize that the dimensions that we've heard about and maybe read about do exist in our own mind. There's no other place for it. It isn't out there. Because if it were out there and not in our own mind, we couldn't reach it. We would have no connection. Our own mind can expand to recognize infinity of consciousness. 
and then coming back to its own <coughs> limited consciousness, remain part of it in understanding. The limited consciousness which we all have is no longer the only one. There's more to the universe than just trying to make a go of life for oneself and maybe a few other people. This experience of those two has as a progression the next one, the seventh one, which is called the base of nothingness. Now the word nothing is often bandied about in Buddhist terminology and usually misunderstood. It doesn't mean that there's nothing. But if you could imagine you come into this room and you see a lot of people, a lot of cushions, chairs, curtains, and so forth. And then all that is taken out, every bit of it. And you come into this room and there's nothing. The room is empty. But that what is empty exists. It's just empty. It's empty or has been made empty of its contents. So when the two have been experienced, the infinity of space and the infinity of consciousness, the mind usually quite by itself or directed turns to the examination of that, the examination of this infinity that is being experienced and can find nothing within that infinity that has any solidity, that has any bearing upon anything, that has any semblance to giving us a handhold on anything. There's just nothing there. Now that coincides with the statement of scientists who have said for many, many decades that there are no solid building blocks in the whole of the universe. Everything are energy particles coming together and falling apart. And this is often experienced, or sometimes I should say experienced by people in that seventh one, that they experience a movement like a fluttering within that infinity. But others experience nothing but an immensity which has nothing at all in it on which anything or anyone can base themselves or hang on to. Because of the fact that these are extremely peaceful and pleasant experiences, no fear is felt at all.
There's no fear, there's no rejection, no resistance. The mind has been made ready through the progressive experience of step by step. Sometimes people who have taken drugs have had experiences that approximate these. But first of all, they can't be kept. But secondly, they can also turn into nightmares because the mind's not ready. The mind has not been trained to accept this different dimension, this different reality. And on the other hand, if one tries to gain access to that insight, which the Buddha proclaimed, which in this tradition is called anatta, which in the Tibetan tradition is called sunyata, which is the same thing, notwithstanding scholars who say it isn't, and means that there is nothing. If one tries to gain access through thinking, it's frightening. If one tries to gain access through continuous application of the knowledge of that, the fear which arises in that respect is one of the steps on the way. It has to be uh, gone through and it has to be, uh, it needs support and help by an experienced uh, teacher. But however, uh, in the meditative options, this kind of fearfulness is completely rare because if one doesn't wish to go any further, because one has seen that, then one just doesn't do it. And most people, in fact, all I've ever met, have no hesitation of seeing all of these steps for themselves. And the feeling which arises when seeing that reality is one of relief and release, and not one of fear. The relief and release is like letting go of a burden at that time of having to make things right, perfect, just so, applicable to oneself, and all the different ideas we have about our lives. In that immensity of space and consciousness in which nothing solid exists, what has to be done. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. It just is. And because we already are, all we have to do is become aware of that. Of course, that's what we're sitting here for. But other than that, we have maybe a duty a responsibility to keep this body alive as long as it has the functions for life and maybe we can share what we have found but other than that we already are and the immensity of existence and universal space and consciousness already is we don't have to fix it we don't have to clean it we don't have to ensure it. We don't have to do anything. 
It just is, and we are within it. Now, that brings relief and release from the strain and stress of trying to become somebody or be somebody or gain something. Everything just exists as it is. These three are called the inside jhanas, the vipassana jhanas, because one can't help but gain insight. And because of the fact that the mind has been based upon the peaceful and happy ones which came first, and of course these also are peaceful, space and consciousness um, are peaceful, the resistance and rejection which is natural in the um, mind of human beings does not have the forcefulness that it usually has so that we do not like to know about nobody there. But it has... The mind has a pliability and it has an expansiveness and it has a softness without which it could never have gotten into the jhanas. And because it has that as its uh, qualities, it can also accept these new understandings quite easily, without fear. The eighth one is a counterpart to the fourth one. The fourth one is very peaceful, and eliminates the observer to a great extent. The eighth one eliminates the observer even more. It's called neither perception nor non-perception. In other words, the mind does not really perceive what's going on. The observer is not really there, but it's also not totally eliminated. The path moments of, about which I will speak at another time eliminate the observer totally. That's the difference between jhanas and enlightenment moments. But in the eighth one, we have a foretaste of this. The foretaste of the experience without the experiencer to a great extent, not completely. It's neither perception nor non-perception. So what actually happens is that the mind becomes so quiet and so peaceful that only afterwards, when it comes out of it, can it say with any degree of certainty, I wasn't asleep. I was there, but I wasn't asleep. That's what it. It cannot really say other than recognizing a great surge of mind energy. Now that can be used as a criteria. When there's mind energy, not to be confused with physical energy, but mind energy, which means there's clarity of mind and a mind which is capable and happy to see much wider connections, to understand totality, and has the clarity to be able to cut through that what we're usually concerned with, then we can 
assume that mind energy has been supplied. So if we come out of any of these meditation states and feel ready to tear this house down and build it up again, we are obviously had a good meditation. If we feel as, it's, as if it were time to go to bed, I can assure you we had a dreadful meditation, whether we know it or not. If we feel tired, it is a state bordering on trance. Whether it was real trance or not, doesn't matter. A tiredness after the meditation is a sure indication that the mind was not concentrated, but was dull. Is this something that some people have to fight and have to deal with, and others never get even in the neighborhood of that? The eighth one gives the greatest mind energy and the greatest foretaste of not being there. And when one comes out of it, one knows that nothing can be compared in peacefulness and happiness to not being there. doesn't mean being dead. It just means that while still alive, there is no connection to this personality cult that we are all engaged in by putting ourselves in the middle of it all. With the universe, the size it is, we can manage to find so many middles, but it doesn't really bring us happiness. And as we experience this foretaste of a loss of self, we realize that nothing can be compared to that kind of peace. The eighth one is not an inside jhana. Neither is the fourth one. These two are regeneration of mind. The greatest insights come in five, six, and seven. However, if you remember, as I explained this morning, that even in the third one, which is the contentment one, we have a very strong understanding that wishlessness is also the loss of dukkha because we are contented and at peace in the third one. The um, immaterial, the arupa jhanas, bring us to the experience of a dimension which makes it possible to realize many spiritual concepts which we may have read or heard about which in the past we may have sort of put aside as imagination or as something which needs to be believed in, but that's all. The Buddha was adamant. Nothing has to be believed. Everything has to be tried out. We need enough faith and confidence in the teaching to try it all out then we make our own assessment. If we don't have enough faith and confidence to try, we'll never find out whether it's true. Whatever we find out for ourselves, that is the truth we contain within. 
All the other things are only direction finders. The Buddha's teaching is an excellent roadmap with signposts at every corner. The signposts are written in any understandable language we want. No secrets. One of the mudras, the hand motions that are used in this tradition is the right hand in the lap and the left hand open with the palm to the front. And it depicts the Buddha's words that he has taught with an open hand, no secrets. There has never been esoteric secrets in the Buddha's teaching. Nothing but guidelines and explanations on how to do it. And then that leaving people up to their own trial and error to try and find out whether the teaching is correct. Naturally, in the Buddha's lifetime, he was available to answer questions. And the discourses of the Buddha are many, many times answers to questions. So if you have any questions, you can ask them now. Yes. In the, in the, uh, you wouldn't realize, well, I have to admit, nobody's ever touched me. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you don't. No, that you wouldn't know. That you wouldn't know. But you also. But I'm afraid I can't save it. Well, you wouldn't know that a mosquito is biting you. That you wouldn't know. But then I'm not sure whether if somebody were to shake you, I think you would know that. I didn't quite say that. Uh, Yes. If you become aware of another dimension in which things just are, or let's say space and consciousness just are, you can take some of that back with you into this ordinary consciousness and recognize the fact that everything just is. Your responsibilities naturally if you have other bodies that need to be kept alive well obviously that has to be done too and you can share your skills and abilities but the worry and fear of am I going to have enough am I going to be able to do it are they going to love me is it going to work out am I going to keep it and all the rest of the worries which are constant in the minds of people they no longer have that kind of impact they eventually disappear altogether, but in the beginning they become less and less. 
You mean keeping this globe in order? Oh, sure. Certainly. I mean, this globe is uh, our momentary abode and uh, I mean, you don't mess up this uh, meditation hall here and if there was a mess, somebody would certainly come and pick it up and clean it up again. So the same way as we don't mess up the place where we physically find ourselves right now, we certainly have a responsibility to keep the things in order which we touch upon or which are around us, which we live. If you want to do something about pollution, the, there is a way that people sometimes misunderstand how to uh, deal with that. Namely, they get angry about it. That's a very uh, useless endeavor. But if we like to keep our planet in order, certainly it's like housekeeping. I mean, some people don't keep their houses in order and, and everything looks a big mess. Um, and other people do. So if we are concerned with good housekeeping, certainly. But the biggest pollution that exists on this globe are our minds. And our minds are polluting the whole, the whole of this globe, and not only that, they're polluting the universe. And if we don't have some minds, which we always have, that are pure and make a counterbalance, it would probably look much worse. So if we can think of a a purification of our own minds, which at the same time then will help to purify as far and as wide as our minds reach, strength of mind, then we can also say that the housekeeping which should be done on this planet might um, fall into our area of activity. I mean, it depends. Not everybody's a housekeeper. Some people do other things. So it is our responsibility, the main responsibility we have is the purification of our own mind. That's the main responsibility. Anything else? No, you can call it mindfulness. But, you see, mindfulness is absolutely essential to even get get to any of these states. Mindfulness is a, is a one-pointed observation. So when what I'm calling the observer, you can call the mindfulness, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, we understand that Lord Buddha uh, passed the final with Nirvana and Nirvana in the fourth jhana. Between fourth and fifth. He probably liked it. I don't know. Oh, we understand that the Buddha passed his final pass in the way was between the fourth and fifth jhana. I wondered why. How can we know that? It's uh, well, <laughs> Mahamogalana, his left-hand disciple, was present at his death, and Mahamogalana was the greatest psychic of all the monks and nuns and people around the Buddha. 
And with his psychic ability, he said, that's what's happening. And that's written in the Parinibbana Sutta, that Mahamogalana said that. So if we have any kind of confidence in the Buddha's teaching, we also have to have confidence in such things that Mahamogalana experienced. I mean, I have no way of proving or disproving that it happened, so he said. And it's quite... um, Uh, logical also because the Buddha was having great pains at the time he had had food poisoning and uh, so it was very painful and uh, he obviously in his last moments would have wanted to have a peaceful passing so he went into the jhanas yes How do you what how do you know that? What determines if you do if you don't in this lifetime? How do you know that they haven't attained these states? Um, well, they haven't shared them. They've been they've been you know sharing in the past ten years their experiences and their teachings with me, and um, they haven't been. I mean, mm. said they've had good states. Maybe their practice, maybe their, uh, their teachings are uh, more mindfulness-oriented rather than this type of orientation, but so I just want to know what determines to just effort or what is it that determines whether you do it, you get to it in the lifetime or not. The teaching determines it. Anybody can do it, but it's becoming a lost art. Um, there are many people, many, I, I don't know how many, but there are people who get to it spontaneously without any instruction and then don't know what to do with it. And there are views about that one need not do it or should not do it. So it has become a lost art. And that happens it has also become a lost art in the Christian tradition because the Christian mystics of the Middle Ages called it prayer. And if you were ever to read Francis de Osuna or Teresa de Villa, you would recognize the same states that they're talking about in their explanations of what I've been talking about. Exactly the same thing, but it's lost. Why is it lost? I don't know why it's lost in the Christian tradition. I have had very no insight into that. Um, in the Buddhist tradition it has become lost as a teaching because of viewpoints and opinions and viewpoints and opinions are rampant in the world and uh, these viewpoints and opinions have then thereby um, made it um, impossible for people to get at this my teacher in Sri Lanka is an 87 year old monk by the name of Venerable Jnana Rama lives at a monastery called Mitrigala. And uh, when I first met him, which was in 1983, 
and discussed this uh, teaching with him, he said to me, you must go into the world and teach this, and because this is a lost art. And I, and I didn't quite understand what he said. I said, yes, but I am already teaching. He said, no, you must teach this. And in Sri Lanka, that took quite a bit of courage, because in Sri Lanka, people believe that it's not possible to do this. And um, in Burma, they also believe that. And so because the teaching has come from these ideas that it isn't possible, uh, it isn't being taught. So what I'm hearing you say is, is staying with the practice, staying with the teaching. Uh, yes, if one wants to do the jhanas, all one needs is to be taught to do them. That's all one needs. It's all that's necessary. I have never in the years now that I have been teaching the jhanas, which is not the whole of the 16 years, but only since Venerable Rama was so adamant about it. Um, maybe now it's only uh, five, five, six years. I've never yet had a course where at least, um, let's say, I don't know the percentage, but maybe six people out of 25 would do it. Well, some of those. No, not not necessarily all eight. <laughs> some of them. Is it a certain type of mind? Is it people grounded so much in the body that because I find I'm I'm in my body a lot. I struggle with the mind, you know, in the body a lot. And I wonder is it What does that mean? I don't understand. What does it mean to struggle with the mind in the body? Oh, right. 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 I didn't understand the part about being in the body. Um, Yes, of course, there are some people who have it much easier than others. It's the greed people who have it much easier to get into the jhanas. Um, (laughs) They have it much easier to get into faith, confidence, devotion. Life's much easier for them than for the hate people. Um... It's much harder for them to become enlightened because greed is pleasant. The results of greed, anyway, are pleasant. And the results of hate are terribly unpleasant. Um, But this is a generalization, you know, and besides, we all have both, right? So we have a little more of one than the other. Um, How many years have you been meditating? Nine. You should be able to do it. Steady? I mean, steady meditation? Uh, no, but mostly? Well, three, four years is usually not enough. But six, seven years should be enough. But that's again a generalization. I have had a, a monks in Sri Lanka uh, who've been meditating for 15 years and then finally... When Ramanyana Rama got sick and tired of them, sent them to me and said, now come on, do something. I mean, they've been sitting there for 15 years doing nothing, you know. So um, they were Westerners, so that's why he sent them, because so I could talk to them in English or in German or whatever the case may be. 
and uh, they were doing it for 15 years and weren't getting anywhere with it. So these are generalizations. Um, it's very difficult to know. But you see now, you need to remember what I said at the very beginning. It's very difficult to remember all that, I know. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder how I remember it all. <laughs> I said that you have immediate benefits, even just from sitting down and doing meditation. The first one is that you're counteracting sloth and torpor by sitting down. The second one is that you're making good karma because the intention is good. The third one is that every single second of concentration is a second of purification. Then the other thing is that if you learn to label, begin inside into your thought patterns, and as you have, because apparently it's planning, it's your thought pattern, and you may be able to do something about that right, because you can see that it's not very useful. And the labeling itself is of great benefit because in daily life you also have then the ability to label and to substitute because you're substituting now with the breath every time you label. So then in daily life you label something as unwholesome or unprofitable and substitute with the wholesome. So no matter what you do, you have benefit from it. It also creates the um, uh, era in the, around you that has mindfulness as its base. So whether you have great mindfulness or medium or small mindfulness, some mindfulness is created because the mindfulness on the breath is, has to have some results. So no matter how little we do or how much we do, the benefits are always there. So... But I personally consider it my duty to teach the whole way and those that can do it will be benefiting and those that can't do it will see that there is something else that can be done. Um, it should not, it can, create envy or jealousy because when we have that we can put a label on that and say, aha, that's what's happening. Or despondency, I can't do that, um, I must be no good. Uh, that too is a self-judgment and has no bearing on the truth of it. It just means that the mind hasn't got that skill, that's all. And when you were talking about people who've been doing it for 25 years and haven't got to these states, they may not be talking about them because they may not be recognizing them if they haven't been taught. That's one possibility. And the other possibility is that there's that skill is not one that they have been developing and cultivating. There are so many skills that we have in the world, we can't do all of those. In meditation, the skills have not been fully explored, particularly in the West. They, yes. So the, the, the possibilities have not been fully opened up. And uh, it's a new, new science in the West. And uh, because of being new and uh, not having a great many uh, professors about that are very um, 
well, skilled, maybe we haven't got, we haven't been shown everything yet. Well, that's also a possibility. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yes. The Buddha's way of teaching was always compassionate. He certainly did not, but he did call his monks and nuns fools. (laughs) 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 He did not do that with lay people. He was far more uh, considerate to them because uh, he thought, well, they have also other duties and they are not that committed. But he certainly called his monks and nuns that. But that was the worst he ever called them. Nothing worse than that. And he also didn't yell and scream at them, as far as we can tell from the uh, books. Um, The attainments of the jhanas are not the attainments of the um, path and fruit. They lead to it. And they bring one, they make it possible for one to have an easy transition. But they are not the attainment themselves. So if somebody has attained a jhanas, um, one would expect that person to have a fairly even and peaceful demeanor, but um, maybe, maybe can also, you know, change at times. But um, the skillful means of, uh, you mean anger and that type of thing? Yes, well, not in the Buddhist tradition, or because that is uh, actually a Hindu, Hindu thing. Oh, I see what you mean. Yes, well, maybe, I don't know. Yes, possible, I don't know. It's a possibility. Yes. Um, is there any relevance uh, in, in, in your meditation, in the course of the meditation, uh, it's sort of like you're pushing the mind to keep track of, of, the, breath, of the breath. And every once in a while, you get off. Of 
I'm not quite sure what you mean. Off to where? Into thoughts. I see, okay. And then you catch mm-hmm. yourself and you get back on. Right. It's like, you know, getting the most through it. Yes. Uh, but sometimes it seems like uh, that happens very, in the experience, it seems like it happens very often. Mm-hmm. But actually, That's quite possible. Um, concentration makes the time go very quickly, and non-concentration makes the time move very slowly. And that's why one can say that time is arbitrary. It depends upon concentration. See, if you read a book which is really fascinating, you may all of a sudden look up and it's one o'clock at night and you didn't realize you've really been reading all that time because you were really concentrated on the book itself. But if there's boring company and you wish they were home, you keep looking every <laughs> ten minutes and it's still only ten o'clock. So it's a matter when the mind is concentrated, time goes much quicker. So it may be a, a sign that there has been concentration no? if it goes quickly. Did you have your hand up, Ricky? No, you didn't. Ah, oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Anything else? <coughs> You feel, after the meditation, you feel drained? No, I feel fine then. Yes. I feel very energetic and everything. Then just speaking with you for a moment about fear or something. Then you feel drained. Yeah, it's just like... Well, fear is, of course, a negative uh, emotion. And the negativity may have made you feel drained. Negativities make one feel drained. Mm-hmm. And when the mind has a, a positive um, lilt to it, it is buoyant. So if there are any, any negativities in the mind, that's why we need to drop them as quickly as possible. Because uh, life becomes more and more difficult because the mind cannot cope because it loses its energy. Yes. I have a question about sitting posture. I noticed two things in myself. One 
just like Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, and I noticed too that, that I, because of back problem, I was sitting my legs back because um, it was easier on my back. Mm-hmm. And, um, I realized I've gone back to sitting cross-legged because I, I felt like my seat posture is stable enough to That's right. for long periods of time. Yes. That's why the cross-legged or the Bluetooth position has been show, uh, used traditionally because of its stability. Uh, that when, because when one gets concentrated, body consciousness disappears, and as it disappears, one needs a stable posture in order to not um, you know, fall over. But you didn't. Ah well, if you if that was if you were actually falling, that was a lack of mindfulness. Yeah, leaning is quite possible. Well, the minute the minute you become aware of either leaning or slumping, you're no longer concentrated on the meditation subject, and you might as well straighten up. But as long as you're concentrated on the meditation subject, you wouldn't know which way the body is, and you just leave it be, of course. But then, when you do know, you straighten up. So what's the idea about keeping? Because I've all thought you had to keep a straight back in order to be able to I should hope it's more interesting. (laughs) Yes, it's more important to be concentrated than keeping a straight back, that's for sure. Um, In the beginning of the the practice of the uh, jhanas, one finds oneself slumping quite often, Um, and it can become a habit. It's because of the fact there are two factors. One is that the body consciousness isn't there. And the other one is that the mind becomes so relaxed and so at ease and uh, so um, pliable that the body, of course, goes along with it. And if you notice it... hmm? Well, that depends. That I can't answer. I don't know. That you have to know, <laughs> whether we're asleep or not. <laughs> but it is certainly true that with the mind being totally pliable, the body becomes the same. And uh, it's a matter of, when you become aware of it, of straightening it up again, and also a matter of eventually, possibly, having a, um, a determination at the beginning to keep it as well straight as possible. That may also help. But whether you're asleep or not, I can't tell you. That you have to know. <laughs> yes. Sometimes when um, my body is relaxed and the breath becomes very small, 
sense of blood becomes all powerful and you can not necessarily the heart but different parts of the body I can feel that mm-hmm. and I'm unclear as to where to go with that since it's away from the breath what you know you kind mm-hmm. of lost the breath because the other is more it's the movement of the blood that you feel? Pumping, but not necessarily. It's more of a surging. Is it pleasant? Yes. Oh, well. It's not the blood. It's a, it's a sensation. You put your attention on that sensation. Yes. And stay with that sensation. And when, it, when your concentration fades, look at the impermanence of it, Recollect how you got there and do it again. And then, having done it two or three times for a length of... Uh, how long were you able to stay on it so far? Momentarily? Or a little longer. A longer, okay. Make it 15 minutes or something like that, okay? And then come and tell me. All right? When I, when I get up, then come and tell me that you've done it nicely. All right? Okay. <laughs> And I'll tell you what, what to do with it. Yes? What I find right now is a comfortable position. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I'm glad to hear that. <coughs> Other than lying down. Oh, wow. <laughs> Well, you went through the body in the sweeping and then you became aware of this heaviness in the whole body. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, do Yes, become aware of it and do the sweep again and see what happens. Okay? Because heaviness is usually not very pleasant. Was it, was, was it unpleasant? No. Well, was it pleasant? It just was. was. Yeah, okay. Do become aware of it and then start again from the top and go through it. (coughs) Okay, see what happens. All right? Anything else? Yeah. After the sweeping? After the sweeping? Well, uh, that's another thing. Maybe I should mention this. This is a good thing that um, you're asking about this. 
if you have had a concentrated meditation and the bell rings and and you you know ready to to stop because the bell has rung don't open your eyes and jump up <laughs> it's very detrimental to one's well-being very gently first look at the impermanence of whatever it was that you were engaged in then reconsider the pathway that you've taken then very gently open your eyes some people find it very helpful to put their palms on the eyes and then open them afterwards and then after you've done that move your body a little and then gently stand up and not very quickly but very very slowly and that is a very good um, antidote for the feeling I don't really want to move or I can't really not move it isn't a good sign it's a sign not wanting to move or not being able to move or thinking what is unable because it is a sign that the concentration has been um, foggy the very aware and awake concentration makes it possible for the mind to be totally alert no matter what whether it's in the eighth jhana or whether it's just looking at the, at the ceiling it doesn't matter i mean that's exaggerated but it's a better sign if one feels quite alert so but in any case whether you feel heavy or whether you feel light it doesn't matter to do it slowly after the meditation is um necessary anyway it doesn't matter which what was the result And please put the attention on the breath for just a moment. Let gratitude arise in your heart for your own good karma makes it possible for you to meditate. Look around you in your mind, see how few people do it and let gratitude engulf you. for your excellent situation for being healthy enough strong enough energetic enough to make this effort
be grateful to all your teachers who have each given you some part of their heart and mind. Let gratitude be strong, empowering, Fill the person nearest you with your gratitude for his or her presence and support in this meditative endeavor. Be grateful that this other person is also trying the same thing you are. Fill him or her with your grateful feelings Fill everyone here with your gratitude without all the others you wouldn't have this opportunity be grateful that all these people are here to help and support this practice Feel the joy that comes from being grateful. Fill your parents with gratitude for everything they've ever done for you from the time you were born.
fill your nearest and dearest people with gratitude. (coughs) Gratitude that they are close to you, care for you, and support your meditation practice by letting you come here. Be grateful for their kindness to you. Fill all your friends with gratitude for the simple reason that they are your friends. Be grateful that they are kind and concerned about you. Let them feel your gratitude. Think of anyone with whom you may be having difficulties or have had difficulties. Fill that person with your wholehearted gratitude for the learning experience he or she has given you. An invaluable learning experience. Be grateful for it. Give that gratitude to that person. 